open us up in prayer, and then we will we'll start. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this um, evening that we're able to gather, Lord, and to look back in church history, Lord, to see um, how members of the church have um, thought through Scripture, Lord, uh, so that they could um, rightly articulate um, who you are, Lord, uh, based on how your word has uh, told us. Lord, I pray that we'll be uh, faithful to Scripture tonight as we discuss the Trinity. Um, I pray that you'll give us um, just ears to hear your word tonight, Lord, and that you'll open up our hearts, that we will see and understand how to fall more in love with you, Lord, as a result of this study. Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to help us, Lord. We recognize we can't um, know you properly at all if it wasn't for your Spirit, Lord. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so tonight is the second night of us working through the patristic era. Uh, Patristic era, as you can see, uh, 100 to 500, according to the title of this note sheet. But tonight, specifically, we're looking at the Trinity. Last week, we were talking about Christ and how people understood Christ in the patristic era, but now we'll be looking at the Trinity. Um, So, if you were here several semesters ago, I should have looked back to see how long ago was it. Was it two years ago? or We haven't been doing that long. Whenever we did the Doctrine of God, um, we spent a lot of time on the Trinity. So, if you were a part of that, which some of you were, uh, some of this will be familiar. Uh, if you weren't, that's fine. Um, just a lot of that material is, uh, goes hand in hand. So, But if you wanted to, you could actually go back and revisit some of these old teachings uh, on the doctrine of God. And it's just on our church website. Uh, so if you're interested in that. But let's begin with the first question here on your note sheets. Um, how do the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit relate to each other? Uh, we recognize there is one God, one in essence, three in persons. These are the three persons. How do the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate to each other? How do we distinguish them? Maybe that's another better way to ask the question. What would you guys say? I know what your answer is. It's from the Father. <laughs> Through the Son. <laughs> sure, well, that's how he reveals himself, I would say. But just simply, outside of his revelation, God has existed before he revealed himself. So, in eternity past, how have they, three persons of the Godhead, how do they relate to each other? You said that was my answer. What's your answer? I would have been more that God, the God, the Father is the Spirit that that is actually sets everything in motion, whether in its creation to to the redemption to the eventual, you know, 
an eternity in existence where the sun is the manif- is the part of God that's a different personality, but it is how God is 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 personable and relatable to to mankind, mm-hmm. and, and He's the one you, you can physically see. He's the one that that communicates God, the Father's love, and and communicates it in a way that's relatable to mankind. And the Spirit is the part of God that's a spirit with a personality that works in our life. I think what you what you articulate is, is faithful. Um, we know all things originate from the Father and comes through the Son and by the Spirit, as you mentioned. Uh, and with that formulation, right, we we're, we're recognizing all things are from the Father, and He shows Himself as you articulated through His Son. He is the image, and then it's all by the power then of the Spirit. Uh, so. Obviously, this discussion, this question has been uh, talked about a whole lot throughout this um, past 2,000 years of church history. Uh, How do these persons of the Godhead relate to each other? Um, So just a quick, uh, quick information. As the early church was figuring out some of these things and how the Trinity relates to each other, or the persons of the Trinity relates to each other. Uh, historically, we think of the east side of the church and the west side of the church. Uh, the east side of the church, we have the Greek speakers uh, who wrote a lot in, in Greek. And then on the other side of the church, the west side of the church, you have the Latin speakers who wrote a lot in Latin. So we're going to be looking at three people today, tonight. Uh, two of them are from the Latin side, and one of them is from the Greek-speaking side. Uh, also, if you were just to compare these two sides of the church, uh, when I say two sides of the church, we're looking at geographically um, the sides of the world, really, of the um, early Christian, Christian history. And the east side of the church historically emphasized, uh, is known to emphasize the individual persons of the Godhead, And then on the west side of the church, uh, they're known to emphasize the unity of the Godhead. The Latin side is known to emphasize the unity of the Godhead. Um, But I want to hopefully show tonight that that is, I think, a false dichotomy that historians have put on the church. I think the East and the West side have both faithfully articulated the doctrine of the Trinity. Both sides, people from the West and East, have emphasized the unity and the distinctions of the persons at the same time. Uh, I think it's something we just need to recognize, because if you were to read any uh, history book on the Trinity, early Christian history, that's just something that would be pointed out. The East side emphasize the distinct persons on the west side, emphasize the unity of God. Um, So with that in mind, like I said, we'll be looking through three individuals, uh, two from the west side, one from the east. And the goal is to show how these individuals looked at Scripture. We'll be looking at the Scripture that they looked at and how they tried to formulate and articulate the unity and the distinction of God. So, 
I also want us to begin by picking up kind of where we left off last week by looking at part of the Nicene Creed. Uh, If you can remember, the Nicene Creed, 325, the Council of Nicaea took place to talk about Christ in relation to the Father. How should we understand Christ in relation to the Father? Uh, And then we have the second ecumenical council that took place um, where they added to this creed. And so we talked about that last week. So I want us to just first read some parts of this creed that has to do with the Father, Son, and Spirit. I want us to pay attention to see the words that are used um, and how they understood who God is as triune. Does anyone want to read, uh, you can see on your note sheet, uh, just under sections of the Nicene Creed, that first bit there right before the break? Does anyone want to read that for us? Thank you. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. Right. Awesome. And then it continues by I cut out the part then where it talks about Christ being the incarnate Son here on earth and um and, and so on and so forth. But I want us to focus first. You can see it starts with God the Father. Right? And it attributes several things to him and it says several things about God the Father here. Uh first off, uh it begins with one God. Right, rightly recognizing one God, he is almighty, and it identifies him as maker, creator, right, of this world, um, all things visible and invisible. And then quickly goes over to Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the big discussions here, we're not going to get all into it right now, uh, but is what, it, what does it mean when it says the only begotten son of God? Um, one of the primary things that we need to understand about Jesus Christ and how um, he is articulated in creeds like this is there's a doctrine called the eternal generation of the Son, that the Son has eternally been generated from the Father. He has eternally been the begotten Son. So what this creed is articulating about Christ here is not something that he has done or does, but something about who he is. So we all could easily recognize the fact that Jesus was born, right? And that's something he does. He became man. He assumed the human nature. But right here, this is articulating something about who he is in his own person. So how do we distinguish between the Father and the Son? Well... We distinguish them simply by the Father is not begotten, but the Son is begotten. The Son is the Son. The Father is the Father. The Father is the Father because he has a Son. The Son is the Son because he has a Father. We, we distinguish them and identify them by how they relate to each other. Uh, and we'll get more into this. And if that's um, 
it doesn't make sense right now, that's fine. But we can see it articulates begotten son of God, born of the Father before all ages. But this is not talking about him being created, right? Then it distinguish then it identifies a little bit more what it means by this phrase here. It says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial. This is a key term, and again, this is a little bit of review from last week. This is a key term, consubstantial. You could circle, highlight, do whatever you want. This is from the Greek word homoousios. If you were to look at your key terms on your note packet, homoousios is the first one listed here um, under key terms on page four. You can see it's a Greek uh, term to mean the same nature or essence of God the Father. Um, Through him were all things made. So, it identifies Christ as cre- or God the Father as creator, then also identifies the Son as creator. All right, last bit here that we'll look at for the Nicene Creed. Does anyone want to read this part on the Holy Spirit for us? So, as we saw last week, this part was added more in the Second Ecumenical Council in 381 um, on the Holy Spirit. I italicized the part where it says, proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is a bigger discussion. We're not going to get into all today. But this and the Son was added in later um, by the West Church, West Church. They're inside of the church um, versus the Greek Orthodox um, church more on the east. Uh, but that's a whole discussion we're not going to necessarily get into. If you were to notice, if you look back at the creed in last week's packet, as we had it in there last week, uh, and the sun, that section was not added in. That section was not in there um, because this was added later, I believe around the 6th s- century. Um, so it wasn't added in when those councils were first being done because this is a, was a hot topic and actually still is today of who the Holy Spirit proceeds from. Um, but we could identify several things here. Holy Spirit's recognized as Lord, right? Giver of life, all those things coming from the Father and the Son. Again, that third line here is not talking about just how he acts, but it's talking about who he is. See, there's a difference. When we talk about someone, we could talk about who they are, uh, and we could also talk about who, how they act. Many times when we talk about how they act, we are trying to describe who they are. Um, but here, we need to recognize that we're talking about who the Holy Spirit is. He is someone who, is, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so if that is true of the Holy Spirit, this is true of who he was before time itself, right? Because God has always existed before creation. All right. Um, We'll finish up this section before we get into the two or the three persons. Um, 
in church history by reading this one quote here from the book, Historical Theology for the Church. As I had mentioned, this is the main book, really, that we're working through this semester. Um, If you want to, I would encourage you to get it. Um, And I think this is a helpful quote uh, from this book, just in this section on the Trinity, to try to help us better understand what I mean when I say these descriptors that we've been reading and what we're confessing in the Nicene Creed is about who God is as persons and not just what they they do and how they act in history. They act in history a certain way because of who they are. And I think this quote here um, articulates that well. Let me read this really quick and then we'll get to Tertullian. Uh, it says, If the Son is sent from the Father in the Incarnation, so we're talking about in time, in history, it is only because he is eternally from the Father in his, in his eternal generation. So then it's attributing it to who he just is as Trinity. If the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son on the day of Pentecost, it is only because he is eternally from the Father and Son in his eternal procession. So we're recognizing something that God does in time and recognizing that's pointing back to who he is simply ontologically. But um, if that's not helpful, that's fine. We'll move on. But I think that's just an important uh, understanding of what we're actually confessing about the Trinity. We're confessing that all things are from the Father, as Lonnie pointed out. Right? All things are generated from the Father. Um, the Son is begotten from him eternally. And then the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All right. So now we're going to look at uh, a guy named Tertullian. Um, has anyone ever been tempted to name their child Tertullian? You could see approximately when he lived, uh, when he was born around 6, 160. I mean, it's hard to know sometimes exactly when these individuals were born. Um, so that's why it's circa around 160. Uh, as I was looking through some of his works today, I have several books here if you're interested in reading some of these individuals. This whole one's on Tertullian. Um, these are his different writings. Um, and I was focusing in a certain section that he was writing on the Trinity to see how he talked about the Trinity. And, I mean, it's hard to focus in on one small area because he's written a whole lot on the, on the Trinity. Um, but I was focusing in on one smaller section. And these verses here that you can see that are in bullet points are several of the verses that he was just referencing before then he makes this concluding remark um, at the very end of these verses. So that's kind of how I did this. Um, I tried to do, do that with each of these three individuals. Look at the verses that they were just dealing with. And then look at their statement. Uh, try to pull out a concise statement on who God is. Um, and what they said who God what is, the Trinity is. Just after observing these verses. Um, so, real quick, brief history, again, right? Tertullian lived pretty early on. 
um, the earliest of these three individuals that we're going to be looking at. Uh, if you can remember last week, we talked about, briefly talked about, mentioned a guy named Sibelius. Um, does anyone remember that individual? Sibelius, he is known for a heresy called um, modalism, or it's also called, um, you could see it, I have on the key terms here, modalistic monarchianism. Uh, so Tertullian refuted Sibelius, uh, um, which was who held to a form of modalistic monarchianism. And you could see just really quick, um, just looking back at key terms on your note packet, it says um, modalistic monarchianism is the belief that holds the unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by denying their real personal distinction. For modalism, the names of Father, Son, and Spirit only describe the manners or modes according to which the same God in himself without distinction acts in the world. So according to Sibelius, Father created all things, and then he chose to show himself in a different version of himself, of the same person as the Son, as he came down then to us in history in the Incarnation. And then now he's also revealing himself um, in a different mode as the Holy Spirit. That's what modalism and archaeanism is, um, and that was denied as heresy. And so Tertullian is known for uh, refuting him and this idea by showing, yes, there's unity, there's one God, but yet there is real distinction. So this is the question. How do we understand this real distinction between the Father, Son, and Spirit while not compromising monotheism? Um, and interesting fact about Tertullian as well. Like I said, he's from the Latin side, the West side. So he wrote in Latin, and he's the one who gave us the terms to articulate the Trinity as we, uh, he gave us the terms substance, really, to articulate there's one substance, one essence of God. With then He also gave us the term persons uh, to distinguish the persons from the substance. So we're not contradicting ourselves by saying God is three and one because we're saying the one thing is his substance and the three things are his persons. When we say God is three but one, we're not claiming those numbers to the exact same thing. There's one substance, one essence with three persons. So Tertullian is the one who really gave us those terms to describe the Trinity. Anyways, let's get to these verses. Um, so does anyone want to read? Um, what I'll do is assign all the verses and whoever wants to read them. And then once all of them are assigned, then we'll just read them in order. I think that's maybe easiest to do it that way. Does anyone want to read Matthew eleven twenty seven? All right, Tom, what about John 1, 1? Lana, John 1, 18. Nancy, next one, John 6. All right, John. Uh, uh, John 8, 26, all right. Um, John 10, you can see it's a lot of Johns. Megan, uh, John 14, all right, you want to read it? Um, John fourteen sixteen. you want to do that one back there? 
And then the oddball out, 1 Corinthians. Does anyone want to do that? All right, Elizabeth. All right. Uh, we'll just read them in order, and then we will talk about them. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows... No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the Father, the only God, Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. John ten thirty. I and the Father are one. John fourteen eleven. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 11. For who knows a person's thought except, except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. All right. Um, so in this section uh, that Sertillian was articulating, um, the, the triune God and the unity that's found in him, but then also the distinction between the persons. Um, I, Like I said, I tried to pull out a section that I thought um, we see a nice concise statement about the Trinity, which is actually kind of hard to do with some of these writers because they could just go on and on and on, and, you could see, and it's hard to find sometimes where does a thought start and where does it end because many of these individuals would write very long run, run-on sentences. Um, it's something I could be guilty of sometimes, and I have to be intentional not to, but these individuals um, could be a lot worse on that. But you could see here, this is his thought um, here. Tertullian says, Now observe my assertion, is that the Father is one, the Son one, the Spirit one, and they are distinct from each other. I am, moreover, obliged to say this when they contend for the identity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That is not by way of diversity that the Son differs from the Father, but by distribution. It is not by division that he is different, but by distinction. Because the Father is not the same as the Son, since they differ one from the other in the mode of their being. Again, what is very difficult, right? There is only one God. We believe only in one God. And since there's one God, there's only one essence, one substance uh, that we call God, who is God himself. But yet he subsists, exists in three persons. Um, So how do we understand these things? And so we could see several things here by Tertullian. 
Um, he's trying to show how they are different here and, and at the end here, after just acknowledging there, there's only one God, right? He says, um, by way of diversity that the Son differs from the Father, um, but by distribution. So he's different by distribution. What does he mean by that? It is not by division, so there's no division division within the Godhead that he is different, but by distinction. So you see some of those terms here. Because the Father is not the same as the Son, since they differ from one another in the mode of their being. So what he's trying to articulate um, is you could think of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit, as the Father who sends the Son, and the Son and the Father sending the Spirit. In that way, it's um, you see the distribution in a sense, um, where the persons are distributed one from another, originating from the Father, comes the Son, originating from the Father and the Son, comes the Spirit. Um, and as they are distributed in that way, even you can think of in time and history in the incarnation and then in Pentecost, right? There's no division in God. It's still one God with one work and one act and one will in time and history. But yet there's distinction. Um, and so this is him trying to put a lot of these verses in John that we've, we just read, how... I and the Father are one, so there's no division, but yet there is some distinction, right? In John 6, 38, what we read, I think is a good verse to show the distinction. It says, For I come from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. There's a distinction, right? Um, so, building off Tertullian, like I said, Tertullian gave us the terms the way to think of God as one substance, but yet three distinct persons, we have Augustine. Augustine, I think, is probably one of the more well-known individuals during this time in history, uh, in church history. Um, Augustine, or you could say Augustine, however you want to uh, pronounce his name. Uh, This is a little bit closer now. You could see it's now after the Council of Nicaea. Um, It takes place. Tertullian exists before the Council of Nicaea. Augustine exists. Uh, lived after the time of uh, Nicaea. And so you could see here in some of these uh, passages, he observes um, in the certain section I looked at, of course, Augustine and Tertullian, and as we'll see, Gregory of Nazianzus looks at the whole breadth of Scripture, Right? Uh, but in the certain sections I was looking at, here he interacts with these verses here. Uh, and just also a quick note, Augustine is known, historically known for emphasizing the unity of God because he's, again, also on the west side of the church, the Latin side, wrote in Latin. So him and Tertullian are from the Latin side. Gregory of Nazianzus, the third guy we'll be talking about, is from the east side, um, who's historically known for... I, identifying the distinct persons of the Godhead. But the reason I picked this section of Augustine that we'll be looking at in a bit 
is to show that Augustine does recognize and distinguish the distinct persons of the Godhead in a meaningful way. Um, we don't, if it's not important to um, to remember the theological terms, but it could be helpful. There's a doctrine called divine appropriations. You could see key terms on the back of your uh, note sheet here: divine appropriations. It says when in a, when an essentially real, or an essential reality or a divine action is attributed to one person of the Godhead in a special way in order to manifest uh, better the divine persons to the mind of the believers. So divine appropriations is a doctrine that's used to recognize that as the one God works in time and history to for redemption, for creation, whatever it may be, it's all three persons working, but yet some of the work is appropriated to a distinct person of the Godhead, such as it wasn't the Father who died on the cross, it wasn't the Spirit who died on the cross, it was the Son who died on the cross. That's an example of divine appropriations. That was appropriated to uh, the Son. But then you have to think of divine appropriations in conjunction with inseparable operations, the term right underneath it, um, which is the doctrine of the Trinity that recognizes, recognizes no matter what God has done in time in history, whether that's creation or redemption, it's one work of God because there is only one God. So you can't separate um, the work of the Father from the work of the, of the Son and the Spirit. Wherever the Father works, the Son and the Spirit work. Wherever the Son works, the Father and Spirit's working. Wherever the Spirit is working, the Father and the Son are also working. And that's um, inseparable operations. Their operations are inseparable while in conjunction recognizing divine appropriations. And that's, I think, they balance each other out in that way. So Augustine is known for inseparable operations. That's what he's historically attributed to, to emphasizing that. But here I pointed out these verses to show he also emphasized divine appropriations. All right, that's a lot. To now, let's get into this. Does anyone want to read the Matthew three passage? Matthew three. All right, Matthew seventeen. All right, Mark one. Um, John twelve. And then Acts 2. All right. Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Matthew 17.5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased to listen to him. Mark 1.11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. John 12.28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Acts 2.24, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, so obviously here in this section, um, Augustine's looking at the passages where distinct persons of the Godhead are emphasized. Uh, in the Matthew 3 passage, 
uh, we have the emphasis on, well, of course, Jesus is the one being baptized, but then on the Holy Spirit as a distinct person coming down as a dove. Um, you also see that uh, Jesus Christ's baptism in the Mark 1 uh, section, focusing on, this, on the Father. But I thought it was interesting here that... Um, Augustine chose to use two different Gospels of the exact same story to emphasize one on the Spirit and one on the Father. Why didn't I don't know why he just continued from verse 16 of chapter 3 and then cited the Father in his work there with his voice coming down. But anyways, that's beside the point. Matthew 17 is the transfiguration. It's on that story of the transfiguration. Um, John... 12 is Jesus teaching in a crowd with a crowd and you hear the voice of the Father from heaven there. And then again, the Acts 2 passage, right? Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming down. So in this section, Augustine, like I had mentioned earlier, is well known for emphasizing the unity of God, inseparable operations in God's work. But yet here he is still emphasizing just as the east side of the church is normally attributed to highlighting divine appropriations, right? So um, where each of these roles and how the Father, Son, and Spirit work as individuals, um, there's something attributed to them in a special way as in God's revelation of himself and God's redemptive work of himself. So let's read this big block quote here from Augustine. It says, The Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, intimate a divine unity of one and the same substance in an indivisible equality. Right? So we have to get that. We have to recognize that right away. It's indivisible. It's undivided. Perfectly equality between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And therefore that they are not three gods, but one God. Although the Father hath begotten the Son, there's that language again, He's not just talking about in time, but in his, like, um, in himself, this is who he is. He is a God who has begotten the, the Son. And so he who is the Father is not the Son. The Son is begotten by the Father, and the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son, but only the Spirit of the Father and the Son. Here he's showing how they relate to each other. This is the very first question we started with at the beginning of this note sheet. How do the Father... Son and Spirit relate to each other. They relate to each other um, by their eternal relations of origin. Uh, but let's, let's continue. Uh, himself also so equal, so also co-equal with the Father and the Son, and pertaining to the unity of the Trinity. Yet, not that this Trinity was born of the Virgin Mary and crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried and rose again the third day and ascended into heaven, but only the Son. Right, So he's recognizing, even though they're all perfectly unified together, undivided, in the work of redemption, Christ's death on the cross, right? Christ paying the punishments for us is appropriated to him. But what we need to recognize, because of the doctrine of inseparable operations, Christ's work on the cross and what he accomplished there was never absent from the Father or the Spirit. Right? And then now with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one 
who unites us to Christ, points us towards Christ. But that work of the Holy Spirit, right, in our redemption is never absent from the Father or the Spirit, or the Father and the Son. It's one inseparable work of God because it's one God. All right. I know we are running a little bit behind in time. Um, I have some good discussion questions I want us to get to at the very end after we look at Gregory of Nazianzus. So he's the last one. You could see the time around when he lived um, in the 4th century there. As I had mentioned, he's on the, uh, the east side now. So he's on the Greek side of the world. Um, he highlights, as I had mentioned, normally they're attributed to highlighting the distinct persons of the Godhead. But here, like I said, I want to break that false dichotomy that um, historians have made throughout time. Here, Gregory of Nazianzus highlights the unity of God just as much as any of the others. I would recognize all three of these men here as faithful men of God. Um, but in his writing... I use this little book for this section. He looks at some of these verses here, and then we'll look at what he articulates about the Godhead. So we already read John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word's referring to Christ, as we know. Uh, John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, Helper referring to the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father. This is Jesus speaking, so you can maybe... See why we would want adding Christ also in with the Father and the Son, sending the spirits, whom I will send to you from the Father, spirits of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. Um, and then last one, John, First John 1, 1 through 3, says, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which... Uh, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, referring to in Christ, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was uh, with the Father and was made manifest to us. Right, This eternal life, the Son, was with the Father um, in eternity. Uh, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. All right. So Gregory of Nazianzus, this is what he says after observing passages like this. He says, Monotheism, with, with its single governing principle, right? Because that's what monotheism is. One, one God is what we value. Not monotheism defined, so he's saying not how we define it, not defined as a uh, sovereignty of a single person, but a single rule produced in equality of nature, right? That's one essence, one substance, harmony of will. There's one will of God. The Father, Son, Spirit don't um, differ and what they want in their wills, and unity in action. It's one action. That's referring, again, to the doctrine of inseparable operations. And the convergence toward their source of what springs from unity, none of which is possible in the case of created nature. The result is that, though, there is numerical distinction, right? There's three persons. There's no division 
in the substance. All right. So there's a lot there, right? So I wanted to emphasize the unity in one who is historically known for as showing the distinction. Um, So what I want us to see, there have been faithful men of God and women of God, but on the east and west side of the church, who have um, both articulated faithfully the unity of substance and the distinction, the real distinctions in persons. Um, All right, for further discussion questions, so I want to hear a lot more from you guys now as I've been talking a lot. Is it legitimate to use extra-biblical terminology? When I say extra-biblical terminology, terms that aren't found in Scripture, such as Trinity, you're not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible, um, or substance and person to talk about God, is it legitimate to use extra-biblical terminology to define and defend the doctrine of the Trinity? Is it sufficient just to stick with the language of Scripture? What do you guys think? Words are like a common way of understanding to, to describe a complex set of ideas always, right? So it's just trying to, they're founded in scripture, they're based on it. So it's not like they're using things from outside as a way to try to justify it. So I think as long as it's founded in scripture, it's acceptable. Okay, that's good. Um, well then, what about the second part of that question? Is it sufficient to stick with the language of scripture? We talk about all the time, or at least I try to talk about all the time, that Scripture is totally sufficient for us. We don't need um, anything more than Scripture to grow as believers. Um, God has given us everything we need here. So why not just stick with the terms that Scripture use, or just stick with these verses that we talked about and not try to go beyond and say Trinity or say one substance? Why not just say one God? What do you guys think with that second part? Help us understand better. Yeah. It brings it back into our language. It says the same thing, but brings it back to our language so we understand. Sure. Anyone? I think it's also important to remember that the Bible is not written in English. So. That's important. Some of these words that we use are English words. I don't know if they have... Greek or Hebrew equivalents, but um, they do help us understand, like Nancy said, because our language is different. Sure. Part of it is the way they were communicating it. They understood it from it, but they needed a way to better communicate what was difficult to understand. And so if you had a common way of, of communicating that what but be able to support you know that what that came from you're right yeah i mean so answer the question first question is it legitimate to use extra biblical terminology yes i mean we are using it so i think it's legitimate so answer the second question is it is it sufficient just to stick with the language of scripture i say yes as well because scripture is sufficient so uh i want to show that i mean these don't contradict each other um audience sure you know well trinity 
your audience might know all that modalistic monarchianism might not be a good term to use with a general audience. Sure. You're right. Um, so oh, I think a way to think of it, right, is if you were to say something to someone, something as simple as saying, I love you, right? Um, that could be all you need to know or sufficient uh, to communicate what you want to communicate. But then as time goes on, right, people are trying to dissect what you mean. What does this person mean by the word love? What does this person mean by the word you? Who are they talking about? Um, and coming up with all of these suggested answers of different definitions of love, right? So I think it's helpful then to use extra biblical terminology simply to be precise in what Scripture means by the words they use. What do what would I mean when I use the word love, uh, right? When I'm talking to Elizabeth or if I'm talking to some random other person, it would mean completely different things. Um, and so I think the extra biblical no- or terminology is simply helpful for us to be precise in simply identifying what is meant by these specific words. Any other thoughts on this? Do we go to the next question? Next question. What if... Heretical positions also cites scriptural support, like monol- uh, like the monarchianism position, right? Modalistic, modalistic monarchianism, such as that, for an example. What if heretical positions cite uh, scriptural support? How does the church determine which interpretation is correct? What do you guys think? How would we determine whether modalism is wrong or right? That's the that's the modalistic monarchianism position. They could use scripture just as well as anyone else, and I think many of these heretical positions weren't intended to be wrong. I mean, these are people who are trying to think through um, scripture and how to, how to articulate God, so they're trying to use scripture. But they usually do, or almost, almost always do. Right? They're not just completely coming out of air. They oftentimes rely on scripture to support their, their beliefs. Even like modern stuff that we're not talking about now, but I've tried, I've done that as well. Um, and I, as thinking back to one of our original classes for this semester, we talked about the how the um, early church determined what should be in the Bible, which books, which is all the apocrypha. So one of the things they would look for was consistency, like consistency. So if you if it says the world is going to end in you know X day, well you can figure out that's not scriptural because it says no one's going to know the time and the place, and so that would be an inconsistent teaching. Sure. Uh, so I think that that's probably one of the criteria. I bet there's probably a few other factors that I can't think of, but sure. Uh, consistency would probably be. Yeah, I mean you have to take the full scripture and see what it it says, and so um, if a position like. Uh, Modalistic monarchianism, that's that's a big term. If you were to take that, and the way you could determine whether it's correct or not correct, right, is if you could hold that up with 
all scripture, scripture, scriptural support for the Trinity. Um, and I would say it, it can't, right? When you look at passages that very much show the distinction between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, how do you hold that up within a position that just believes there's only one person that just shows different modes? Um, right? There's real distinction. And so, I mean, a position, a doctrine would have to stand the case, or would have to stand all of these scriptural support. Um, all right, last bit here. Last question to finish up. What are the practical implications of the doctrine of the Trinity, and how uh, did this, doc- or how, I should say, does this doctrine matter for the church today? How does it matter today? I wish I left more time for this question. Um, I mean, I think this is a very important question because I think there can be many of us Christians in the evangelical world who know we should believe in the Trinity, we know that God is Trinity, but if you were to take that doctrine out, what difference would it make in your life today as a Christian? Would it make any difference? And if it doesn't make any difference, then that's a big problem. Because this is who God is, and God is um, the fountain of all things. Um, All things proceed from him. So how would you guys try to answer this question? Mm-hmm. Because God does one thing one way, or tells them what to do. Jesus follows through, and so does the Holy Spirit. And there are places in the Bible where it says the Holy Spirit will pray for you with, you know, help you pray and pray for you. So if there's no Holy Spirit, who's praying for us? Yeah. And yeah. Jesus who died for us. I think you're hitting on it really well, Nancy. Where. You're showing, like, without the doctrine of the Trinity, I mean, there is no gospel. There is no Father who sends His Son for the world to die for the world. There is no Holy Spirit that we now receive that unites us to the Son. I mean, it's so foundational that if there is no Trinity, there is no gospel. I mean, ultimately, there would be nothing if there was no Trinity because there would be, none of us would be in existence uh, because He is Creator. Um, so yeah, it's very uh, much, I mean, John, John 3.16, right? Um, where you see the Father sending the Son. This is, we see who God is and His distinct persons, but yet one united action for salvation in, in that. So the gospel is is a direct um, implication for us understanding the Trinity, or for the Trinity itself to be um, to be true. Uh, I also think our access to God, I mean, that's also in line with the gospel, right? The Trinity gives us access to God. Um, so it gives us our ability to worship God. What's the purpose of life? You would say the purpose of life is to glorify God. You have to have access to God, come to God, in order to glorify Him. Um, so the, without the Trinity, you cannot come to the Father because you have to come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Kind of going back what Lonnie had remembered from when we talked about the Trinity last time. So how do we come to the Father? We do it through His Son. He is the perfect mediator between God and man because He is the 
um, the perfect high priest. And we do this by the power of his Holy Spirit. Right? There would be no gospel. There would be no ability for us to worship God if he wasn't triune. So these are just some of the reasons why um, I mean, this is so just foundational. By asking the question, how does the Trinity matter? We're asking, how does God matter? Because God is triune. He is the Trinity. All right. We're going to over by a minute. So are there any last questions or comments about anything? We wouldn't be able to what? Get to God. Yep. We wouldn't. Right? Because we have access to the Father through His Son by His Spirit. We um, need all three persons in order for God to reveal Himself to us and then for us to receive Him and express our worship back to Him. He's re- God's revealed from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. We're joined to His Son. Then we can have worship. We could worship Him by the Spirit through the Son to the Father. All right. Let me close out in prayer. Lord, we love you, and we again, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word. Lord, to look at several of these passages, Lord, and just see how um, faithful men who have gone before us, Lord, have thought through these things. Um, and I thank you that we could use their example, Lord, but ultimately recognizing your word is um, sufficient, and it's all what they used, Lord. And I thank you, I thank you that we could simply just learn from these other individuals as um, just further commentary, Lord. Um, recognizing that we can't do this Christian life on our own, Lord, and you don't intend us to, Lord, but you have given us each other as your church, Lord. And we thank you for our local church here at First Baptist Church, but then we thank you for the universal church, Lord, as well, that we can learn from other men and women who have um, gone before us. Lord, such as Tertullian, Augustine, and uh, Gregory of Nazianzus. Lord, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.